Open your Bibles this morning to Zechariah chapter 13. That's going to be the first passage we look at. This passage is going to get us ready for the, the main passage, but you'll see how they mesh together so easily. Now, for those of you who are not up on your minor prophets, uh, Zechariah is the next to last book in the Old Testament. Okay, Zechariah, Malachi, and then we get to the New Testament. And I'm just, once you get there, just hold on to it. We'll, we'll read it once we, once we get uh, to that portion of it. Okay, so let's pray before we go on. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come upon us, open our eyes to what you have for us today, that, that your word might come alive for us, that it might penetrate us, and, and that we would fully understand what you call us to as your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're in the midst of what we just started last week, if you remember our famous, uh, famous uh, sermon on Eglon and his belly, and um, we're, we're looking at some very difficult passages that uh, people don't usually preach on, because you look at them and you think, why in the world are they even in there? I mean, why, what does this have for us today? And the story of Eglon, as we saw last week, was... The point was God will stop at nothing to save his people. And he will go to whatever ends he deems appropriate and necessary to achieve that. Now we come to this passage. And, and, and the passage in Deuteronomy, which we'll read in a moment, basically says, If your son is bad, take him to the elders of the city, and they'll take him to the gates, and they'll stone him. Now, as parents... There may have been a day or two or three when we wanted to take our kids out to the city elders and have them stoned because they were getting on our nerves to such a degree we just couldn't take it. I head up to here with you. I'm going to call the elders. They're going to bring the rocks. You know, something like that. <laughs> but, but when we see this, uh, this passage in, in particular, we, we wonder, Lord, really? What does this have to do with me today? I mean, that was written a long time ago, and, and I, I don't, who knows if it was ever used, but yet it is in his holy word. And it is for us today as much as it was for them long, long ago. Now, as I said, it, it, this passage that we're going to go to, and, and, and the sundry passage here in, in Zechariah, about those who have reached it up to here with their kids. Now, we know the, the fifth commandment is what? Honor your mother and father. Okay? Honor your mother and father. And it's the only one that comes with a guaranteed blessing. If you honor your mother and father, what happens? Your days will be long. Okay? If you don't, they're going to take you to the gates and have you stoned and your days will be short. It doesn't say, I'm, I'm reading into it. It doesn't say that, but I'm reading into it. Um, but... We find passages like, like this in Zechariah and in Deuteronomy that we'll see in a moment that seem to be really hard. I mean, really, really hard. There's a passage in Numbers chapter 15 that um, the people of God have come out. It's, it's, it's during the Exodus. They're in the desert. And a guy gets up on, on the Sabbath morning and says, oh, man, I'm getting firewood. I, I'm just going to go out and grab a couple sticks. And he goes out and gathers a little bit of firewood on the Sabbath. And when he comes back with his bundle of sticks... They stone him because he worked on the Sabbath. 
So we see passages like that, and we think, oh, that's hard. Really, is that the type of God we serve? Yes, it is. That's the type of God that we serve. Because holiness was so very important, and holiness, especially in the Old Testament, was about obeying these laws. Because you were a people set apart for God. You were a people not like everybody else around you. You had a particular role within the world, and that was to demonstrate that you were different because the Lord had saved you and worked in your life. So we come to Zechariah chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 um, for us so that we understand um, this, this first passage in Zechariah gives us kind of the uh, national and corporate understanding of what it might take to be holy and devoted to the things of God. So let me read from 13. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered, and I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Just so there's no mistaking what that says. It's the son who continues to teach false things and to prophesy falsely. Mom and dad are commanded to kill him. Hard. Let me finish through verse 6. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. We'll understand the rest of that here in just a moment. So this is a passage about the Lord cleansing his people from idol worship and false teachers because they go hand in hand. They're spiritual powers that are standing behind the false teachers. They go idols and false teachers, the spiritual uncleanness. And what happens is when the Lord begins to renew his church and revive his people, false teachers and false prophets flee from that. Because the truth is greater than the falsehood. So the renewed and gospel-centered church today becomes a really a hostile environment to false teachers. Because false teachers are seen to be what they are when the people of God are rooted and in the word and fed the word and are digesting it into their hearts and minds and, and it is filling all that they are. Then they can see the false teachers. The false teachers are challenged. They are um, uh, demanded to repent, and if they don't repent, they're kicked out. Okay, they're kicked out. There is a zero tolerance for purposeful false teaching in God's Word. Zero tolerance for purposeful 
false teaching. Now, there might be a, dis- a difference that, that you or I have on some points or things like that. That's not the same as me standing up and saying, you know, that, that passage in John 14 that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me. Really, that's a mistranslation. And it should be that Jesus is, is one of the ways and he's one of the truths and he's one of the lives and he's one of the ways. No. If you hear me say that, you know, don't let me finish the sermon. Okay? Run me or anybody else out because false teachers, purposeful false teaching cannot be tolerated. As I said, there's some, there might be some distinction on views and things like that. But when it comes to the things of who is Christ, when it comes to the things of salvation, when it comes to the things of the character of God, we look to the word and what's it say? This is the way God is. We may not like the way that God is, but that's the way that he is. We are to adjust according. So in Zechariah 13, verse 3, even parents of false prophets cannot tolerate the presence of that false prophet in the community, even though it's their own child. Parents must love and respect the purity of God's word and the sound doctrine more than they love their children. Really? that's, That's what it says here. That we have to love and respect the purity of sound doctrine and God's word more than we love our children. That's a a pretty high bar to set, don't you think? But that's what it says. That's what it says. And I have not found many parents in my experience who have been willing to do that, frankly. I found a lot of parents, and in fact, the, the people that I began to think about... Uh, when, I, when I read this over, I began to think of pastors that I have known who have changed their long-held views on doctrine and what the Word says in order to accommodate the lives and the sin of their children. And, and they said, well, it's the loving thing to do. I see my children like this, and, and I know God's Word says this, but I, I better change my view of God's Word because if I don't, I'll, I'll, what, I'll lose my children. They'll, they'll be alienated from them. Who would you rather be alienated from? Your children who are in sin or God? Now I know that that's a hard choice because your children are here. You love them, you care for them, and, and, and when they go astray, our job is to correct them and to, to love them and put our arms around them and try to bring them back. But when they don't and when they pursue falsely, and, and in this case, in Zechariah, when they pursue false teaching and they, pers- they, they go out and teach it themselves, they're to be put aside. And in Zechariah's case, you're to kill your own children. Oh, it's hard. Okay? Go out and preach that on TV. See if that sells. Well, you just, you won't last more than one episode and that kind of thing. That's just not a popular doctrine that we have. And, and all these parents that I've talked to have said it's the loving thing to do, but I've never found abandoning the truth loving. We have to love one another enough to stand on the truth and on the rock of Christ. And even if it's difficult. And the false teachers in this chapter, chapter 13, know they're teaching the false doctrine. They know they're teaching falsity. 
They do not want to conform to the truth. And the false teachers find all kinds of excuses when they're caught in it. Look at 4, 5, and 6. And it all, also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a tiller. See, he's, he's, he's teaching false prophets, but he's, he's going to continue to do it, but he's going to do it in disguise here. And he's going to explain away the things that um, are evidences of his false teaching. I'm a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? See, it was very common in that day for false teachers that go into these ecstatic moments. Uh, You remember um, the prophets of Baal. There they are up on the mountain and they're dancing around. Elijah says, oh, you go ahead. You guys have at it first. And if your God brings down fire on the altar and consumes it, great. I'll just sit here and wait. And then when you're done, well... I'll pray for the Lord, and he'll do it, and we know what happened at the end. But in the midst of that, the prophets of Baal are dancing around, and they're cutting themselves with knives and, 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 and bleeding themselves all around the altar. And that's what happens in some of these ecstatic moments for these false prophets. They're cutting themselves to get all jazzed up, so to speak, in their worship of their false god. And so the false prophet here is hiding and he's explaining away the wounds that are in his arms because he knows that if they figure out who I am, you know, they're going to kill me, but I want to continue to be a false prophet. See? And so he continues on with this. In the first verse, he says, in that day of fountain. Now, if you were in Sunday school, you know where we're going with this. Um, it refers to the day of mourning in Jerusalem, and that's back in Chapter 12, verse 11. But in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. If you go back, it says, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Chapter 12, verse 11. Like mourning, and is Hadadrimen, and the, I can never say his name. Of course, it's probably the first time you ever heard his name try to be said. Uh, in the plain of Megiddo. Well, There is a fountain for cleansing. And that's what the Lord is saying here. There is a way you can be cleansed if you're interested in doing this. But but there is an explanation as to why they don't want to do this. And Spurgeon says, it's ludicrous, ludicrous for someone to protest that I can't bathe because I'm too filthy. That's kind of what the prophets are saying here. No, I can't be cleansed. I'm, I'm just too dirty. He says, it's ludicrous for someone to protest I can't bathe because I'm too filthy. It would be equally ridiculous to say, I need to clean up myself before I come to this fountain to be cleansed. It's like, um, there you are, you have a car accident, you're sitting on the side of the road, your leg's broken, your arm's broken, you've got a big cut on your forehead and you're bleeding and the ambulance shows up and you says, wait a minute. You say, let, let, me, let me get this arm splinted and this blood wiped off before you take me to the hospital because I hate to go to the hospital all messy. Now, now, you go to the hospital to get worked on, to get healed. And the same thing with the bath. No, I'm too dirty for the bathtub. Uh, too dirty for the bath. No, there's a fountain that cleanses the most foul, dirty, defiled of sinners. The dirt can never pollute. This is Spurgeon. The dirt can never pollute this fountain because it just keeps on flowing to wash away our filth. And what is that fountain? There's a fountain that's filled with blood, 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's the fountain that cleanses us. That's the fountain to which we can bring all of our sin and all of our dirtiness and filthiness and be cleansed there. There's no... There's no thinking in our minds. You know, I've just done too many bad things for the Lord to forgive me. I've just done so, my heart is so filthy. There's no way I could find forgiveness there. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There is where our sin is washed. There is where it is cleansed. His grace is, Romans says, it is more than abundant. And literally, it means super abundant. Here are your sins. Or maybe your sins are here. Here is the grace. The grace is always more abundant than the sin that we have. He was always ready for those who confess their sin and turn to him. They will find healing. So the thrust of these verses here in 12 and 13 is that those who receive the cleansing from sin also have to be zealous to separate themselves from sin. Paul says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7. We dare not continue in sin, nor do we knowingly allow false teachers and false prophets who purposely habitually and unrepentantly sin or continue to sin in our midst. And the sin of idolatry is what the issue is here before us. And idolatry, J.I. Packer says, idolatry, it needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. In other words, when people say, I don't like to think of God as a judge. I like to think of him as my loving father. They're guilty of idolatry because they're making God into their own image. It's the the old story. In the beginning, God created man in his own image and we have returned the favor. We like to think of God more like us than more like he is as he defines himself. When we make God into an image that's more like a man, we pick and choose from Scripture those things that we like, and then God begins to look like us. Any deviation from the revelation of Scripture about who God is, is idolatry. Idolatry. So you couple the sin of idolatry with false teaching. Now, I cannot say that that everything that has come out of my mouth has been, you know, pure doctrine and 100% correct in everything because there's enough sin within me that, that taints me. Now, you know, as long as I'm sticking with Scripture, I'm teaching Scripture. But the danger is when we get off and try to do our own thing, we stray away from God's truth. Now, but there's a difference between um, Small errors, misunderstandings, different views on minor points, and errors that pervert the nature of God and his salvation. In the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we have seven essentials. Okay, Why are they essentials? Because they're essential. Things like the sovereignty of God, salvation only in Jesus Christ, uh, the authority of the word, 
the bodily return of Christ. You know, these are essentials that we stick to and we're going to live and die with. Other things that are outside of those essentials are often left to interpretation and as your conscience is informed by Scripture. So we do have these essentials and they help ground us on what it is that we stand for as a local body of believers. Now, back to Zechariah. We're actually going to get to Deuteronomy today, but you'll see why we had to go to Zechariah. Verse 3, and it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. When they read that, they probably thought, being good Jewish people steeped in the, in the law, thought about Deuteronomy chapter 13. That's where Moses says, if your brother or your son or your daughter or the wife that you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul entices you to serve other gods, not only were you to... You do, you do not listen to him, but Moses said you're not to pity him, do not spare him, do not conceal him, but to kill him. This is hard. And really? This is my best buddy. I've known him all my life. This is my, my wife that I cherish. Maybe not the, wife, it's the, not the other wives, but the wife that I cherish, right? This is the one I cherish. And you want me to kill them? Scripture says, yeah, if they're teaching false doctrine, knowingly, purposely, purposely, unrepentantly, and habitually teaching false doctrine. They They have to be gone. Now we turn to Deuteronomy 21. So we see from Zechariah the the passion, the emphasis that God's word puts on. What you do with people who purposely, habitually, unrepentantly pursue sin and teach false things. We come to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 18. Now, we, we can we tie these things in with the prodigal son. Okay, and here was the, in, in the New Testament in Luke 15, the prodigal son. And, and imagine the heart of the father as his son says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. So when you go to your parents and say, I want my inheritance now, basically you're saying to Dad, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. So he says that to his dad, and he takes it, and you know the story of the prodigal son. He squanders it in all kinds of loose living, and finally comes to his, his senses and says, you know, here I am, I'm feeding the pigs, and I, but, but the people who are slaves in my father's house live better than me. I'm going to go home. So he takes whatever he has, which is probably only the clothes on his back, and he heads off to home. And as he gets home, what does he find? His dad is there looking for him, waiting for him to come back. And his father picks up his robes, like this, we, we, we have trousers, but he picks up his robes, revealing his ankles, which culturally was a no-no, and goes running off to his son. And his son says, I've sinned against God and against you. And the father embraces him and he loves him and he puts a robe on him and gives him a ring and they have the fatted calf and a big celebration. So we, 
we're stuck with these passages in the Old Testament about the purity of doctrine, about the danger of false teachers, and then you have the in the New Testament the love that is demonstrated to the one who's gone astray. And we'll see how this comes together just at the end. So Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. Now, these are very important things. Hometown is very important here. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city, all the men of his city, shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. All Israel shall hear of what happens here, and they're going to be afraid. They'll be afraid. We can't take this passage just in isolation, okay? Because how many of us wouldn't be here? Because our parents would have stoned us, okay? Because they, they'd head up to here. How many of us would be one child less, you know? One child less to send to college. Hmm, that's not too bad, okay? Um, so, you know, you can't take it in isolation. You have to understand it in the larger context. That's why we looked at Zechariah, to understand God's hatred to false teaching and hatred to sin, now, this section in Deuteronomy, starting back in chapter 10 goes and, and, and continues on past this chapter, is all about laws given to God, by God to provide for justice and order and to lead people in faithfulness. That's why these laws are here. The nation of Israel was not like us. It's not a democratic republic or anything. It was a theocracy. God was their leader. And their lives and their laws were all about conforming to what he says so that they might be set apart, so his glory might be demonstrated in them. So part of purity, which was what they were called to do, live lives of purity, was national purity, meaning a separateness from other sinful nations. Their lifestyle separated them from other nations. They were not allowed to intermarry and things like that. And another part was the individual separation from sin they had to be as individuals pure and holy and devoted unto the lord so many of the laws here that that are in chapters 10 and following really protect people from uh, overzealous abuse uh, from those who may have taken the laws and wanted to be purely legalistic and were hard-hearted such things as for instance um, unwanted wives were protected from brutality Remember, it was a very patriarchal society at that time. If the husband uh, didn't like his wife, uh, he had a lot of leeway and latitude in, in what he could do. Whole villages were protected from retaliation. If, if I did something to your family and you lived in another village and I ran home to my village, it was not uncommon for that village to come and kill everybody in this village. The law said, no, you cannot do that. Um, Inheritance rights for females were guaranteed here. It, and before this, ladies, you know, if, if uh, mom and dad died, you, you really didn't get anything. Okay? The, the boys got it all. And if there weren't any boys, then it went to dad's brother. Well, here in these laws, you were guaranteed to receive part of dad's inheritance. 
So in this instance, in chapter 21, the parents are empowered by the Lord to bring a son who has remained, and here here are the qualities, stubborn, rebellious, gluttonous, and a drunkard. Now, this is the, the punishment for this is death. Usually we associate uh, the death sentence with what? Murder. Okay, Murder is not listed here. It's not listed here. But these things are purposeful, habitual, unrepentant sin. And ultimately, they are against the Lord. They're sinning against their parents by being disobedient. But remember, honor your mother and father. These were for national holiness. Uh, They were to be a nation set apart. And when they disobeyed their parents, when they purposely pursued sin, they were not living lives of purity to the Lord. They were corrupting the entire area around them. And if it was allowed to spread, they would corrupt the entire nation. Remember, that was one of the things when they went and disobeyed God and married foreign wives. Corrupted the entire nation. Now, the, the fifth commandment, as we said, honor your mother and father, echoes is, is echoed in Ephesians chapter 6 as well. And that's the promise, that it may go well with you. It may have a long life in the land. If you don't honor your parents, mm, no good for you. Now, the, in the Old Testament, what does it mean to honor our parents? The Old Testament... The word honor means heavy and weighty and and rich and and glorious and burdensome. All these things come into this this one word. So if we sum it up, our parents should be a priority in our life, a significant priority in our life. They should not be ignored. They should not be taken lightly. Uh, Our choices should take in their needs and their wishes and their desires. In the New Testament... Ephesians chapter 6, the same word means to determine the value of something. Determine the value of something. In this case, the value is very high. Because God has put them over us, he's ordered our lives that we might be in that household and and for his purposes. So we are to demonstrate to them love. Well, I love people. Yeah, you're supposed to love your parents a little bit more. A little bit more. So treat them with love. Treat them with the fruit of the Spirit. Speak to them with respect. Forgive them wholeheartedly. These are the things we're to do as believers to other believers in general. Seek reconciliation when we have misunderstandings. Go to them and speak to them. And that applies not only to godly parents, but to ungodly parents. Until those ungodly parents cross the line and go against what Scripture says. When they go against what scripture says, we have to follow the things of God's word. It's the same thing with the state. When the state uh, gives us an order or makes a law, we're to follow it until it goes against God's word. All right. Let's look at these charges. Stubborn, rebellious. Drunkard, glutton. Now, a glutton, it's not that this boy ate too many pizzas. It's not that he likes to go out on Saturday nights and drink. It's not that he's a two-year-old and just has a stubborn streak and we're going to work it out of him. 
These are things and traits and part of his character that have been demonstrated again and again and again into young adulthood. We don't know how old he is, but he's still under the the umbrella of his mother and father. And nobody has been able to penetrate his mind with the truth. No one has penetrated his heart with the truth. In fact, his heart has gotten harder in the midst of this because he rebels against it. This is the establishment of a character that loves immorality, that loves it and pursues it and sees nothing wrong with it. Don't give me that stuff about what is right and what is wrong. This is what I want to do. And when the boy does that enough times, and the parents have thrown up their hands enough times and said, I I, I give up, they take them to the elders, and that's where he is stoned. In a theocracy, in the type of world that Israel lived in, purity was very, very important. There was a demand for purity and a demand for holiness. And when you went against those things, there were consequences. Gee, what was that, that, that lady that Samson pursued? Delilah. Okay. He, and she, she was not an Israelite. She was not part of the covenant people. In fact, everybody he pursued were bad. And that led him into bad things and led him away from the things of the Lord. Six things as we come to a close here. We apply this passage as part of the moral law in our lives today we'll understand this first the command is applied only to the son who has been rebellious to his parents over an extended period of time it doesn't lay out how many years um, but you'll see there are safeguards for parents who just may have been threatening it i can remember i was out with uh a professor and I was out at, when I was in college I was out at his house we were working and his son came by and did something and the, the professor looked at the boy and said son I'm going to break your leg if you do that again and the boy went you're not going to break my leg dad you always say that okay well there was no real threat behind that so parents didn't pull this out of their hat and say if you don't straighten up I'm going to take you to the elders and have you stoned no there was no threat of that this was a last resort Last resort for someone who had pursued sin. Secondly, the law required that both parents, as well as the town elders, were witnesses to this crime. So it couldn't be dad says, I'm fed up, and mom says, no, no, we're not ready yet. They both had to go to the elders and give evidence, and then the elders also had to agree that they had seen this for years in this young man's life. Third, if both parents and the elders approved, then it required all the men of the city to stone him. So they all had to come together in agreement with this. This was the charge. This was the verdict. All people had to come together to execute it together. Fourth, the real goal of this is to remove evil from the midst of God's people. To remove it from the community Really, it's there to protect the community in that day. It's about holiness. and It's about being set apart as the people of God. Now, fifth, we find no evidence in Scripture that this was ever applied. 
Okay? We go through all this, and then we say, nobody ever did it. Now, because there are plenty of other places in Scripture where we see the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the sentence and everything to be carried out, and then it's given as an illustration who it was done to. Like, don't work on the Sabbath. Here comes the guy carrying a bunch of firewood, collected on the Sabbath. They killed him and stoned him right there. There is no evidence in Scripture that this was ever applied in any life. But it was there to foster holiness and to foster purity. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. This is number six, the protection of society. You must purge evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. The fear of God is this lost biblical doctrine. I mean, how many of us really actually fear God? How many of us... You know, rather think of God as our, our buddy or somebody who understands us and I can cry out to. Yes, he is that way, but he is holy and he is other and he is all powerful. And we are to stand in awe of him and look upon him with fear. But yet that same God who we are to fear draws us unto himself and says, you know what? If you're involved in sin. If you've got something that you think is too filthy, that can't be forgiven, if you think you have participated in things that there is no coming back from, come to me. You can find forgiveness. You can find mercy. You can find healing here. This is the same God that we see here in Deuteronomy who says, I've sent my son for you. That's the extent of my love for you. That is how much I care for you that I would give him To pay for that filthiness of your sin. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great opportunity to to read something and think, really, is this who you are? Is this your character? But it's not quite about that. It's about a character of holiness. It's about a call upon your people for purity and lives that are set apart unto you. Heavenly Father, we, we, we see from what we can understand of your scripture that the threat of this was enough of a deterrent that it didn't actually have to be carried out. There's no record of it. But the threat of that was enough. And an understanding by the people that they had to live holy lives, that there were consequences to unholiness, consequences to ungodliness consequences to impurity and we understand this today lord there are consequences in our lives when when we see the the boundary of what you say is appropriate and we go beyond it and if we purposely and habitually and unrepentantly go beyond it again and again and again there are lifelong consequences to sin but lord your word is very clear Your grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to cover whatever sin we have. Whatever sin we have to lay at the feet of the cross. And and, and Christ calls us and he forgives us. Because there's a fountain that's filled with his blood. And it is his blood that cleanses us from sin. Lord, move in our hearts today that we might understand the depth of your love for us and the depth of your forgiveness for us. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.